Hello. The UN's rights chief tells us that Russian forces have used cluster bombs in built-up areas in Ukraine, and that Ukrainian forces may have used them too. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, Martin Griffiths, the emergency relief chief, tells us that millions of ordinary people's lives are hanging by a thread. In South Sudan, the UN refugee agency has put the spotlight on communities who are using mud and anything else they can lay their hands on just to keep the flood water at bay. We'll hear the latest research from migrant journeys and the disturbing continuum of abuse they face, plus a more positive initiative from the World Health Organization to beat mosquito-borne sickness. Stay with us too for closing comments from regular guest Solange Berhategui-Cortez, who's here to wrap up the show. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. Credible reports indicate that Russian armed forces have used cluster munitions in populated areas of Ukraine at least two dozen times since they invaded on the 24th of February, UN Rights Chief Michel Bachelet has told the Human Rights Council. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights also told the Council on Wednesday that her office had verified well over 70 incidents in which medical facilities have been damaged, including 50 hospitals. In many areas across the country, people urgently need medical supplies, food, water, shelter and basic household items, Ms Bachelet said. In South Sudan, UN humanitarians have warned that villagers are using their bare hands to build mud walls to protect their homes from flooding. The situation is expected to worsen when the wet season begins in around a month, UN refugee agency UNHCR said on Tuesday. The impact has been worst in Jonglai, Unity and Upper Nile states, where thousands have been displaced. Here's Andrew Harper, special advisor on climate action to the UN refugee agency. You've got elderly women, you've got vulnerable populations who are basically grabbing mud and trying to build up the berms around their villages. And this is during summer. This is during the dry season. The wet season hasn't even started yet. South Sudan is still struggling to overcome the deadly aftermath of civil war that followed independence in 2011. It also had its worst flooding on record in 2021, which impacted more than 830,000 people. The UN launched the biggest appeal ever for a single country on Thursday when it asked for $4.4 billion to help 22 million people in Afghanistan. Needs there are dire and worsening after recurring drought and two decades of fighting. Speaking from Kabul, UN Emergency Relief Chief Martin Griffiths said that he'd been profoundly disturbed after visiting a hospital where he saw severely acutely malnourished children being fed in intensive care. The humanitarian situation here is grim. For tens of millions of people, life hangs just by a thread. Today, half the population in Afghanistan faces acute hunger, including 9 million who are in a state of emergency food insecurity, which is the highest number in the world. Now, have you heard of arboviruses? They're some of the world's most dangerous mosquito-borne illnesses, such as dengue, yellow fever, chikungunya and Zika. They're all mosquito-borne illnesses too, and they represent a massive health threat in tropical and subtropical parts of the planet, where more than half of the world's people live. Faced with a growing number of arboviral outbreaks worldwide, the UN Health Agency on Thursday launched a global initiative to prevent a new pandemic. Dr Mike Ryan, who's head of the World Health Organization's emergency programme, explained that the scheme would tackle the related threats posed by dengue, yellow fever, chikungunya and Zika. For each of these diseases, there have been gains in different aspects of surveillance, response, research and development. 
but sustainability is often limited to the scope and duration of disease-specific projects. There is an urgent need to re-evaluate the tools at hand and how these can be used across diseases to ensure efficient response. The headlines there, and as we've just heard, the Ukraine crisis is the scene of terrible rights abuses. It's caused millions of people to flee the country already. And that brings us to this week's interview, which is about the dangers migrants, refugees and asylum seekers face when seeking shelter in a foreign country. To help raise awareness about this, a new report from the Sereda Project, which launched at the Red Cross Museum in Geneva on Thursday, has highlighted how vulnerable migrants suffer abuse multiple times while on the move, and also in countries of refuge. To talk about this, I spoke to one of the report's authors, Jenny Fillimore. She's Professor of Migration and Superdiversity at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Here she is talking about the Continuum of Sexual and Gender-Based Violence, or SGBV. Key findings relate to the what we would call the continuum of sexual and gender-based violence. The fact that people face multiple incidents of violence across time and place at the hands of different perpetrators. Just on that continuum of violence, as you were saying, I was really shocked by the confirmation really in this report of the fear that the risks of sexual and gender-based violence are intrinsic to displacement. So it happens in pre-conflict settings, in conflict while people are on the move and in refugee settlements. So is it true that up to 70% of women and girls are victims of sexual and gender-based violence? Some researchers have found that the incidents are that high. The problem is nobody knows. There are insufficient recording mechanisms. They don't catch that complexity. And also women and men particularly are very reluctant to disclose because there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with what happens to them. We've no idea. We know it's a huge problem that affects millions of women, children, boys and some men every year. So I guess what listeners really want to know is what are the human stories? What is the real human drama behind this? What is migrants' uh, biggest challenge, for example? There are so many ways in which um, sexual and gender-based violence can occur. And a big factor is the length of the journey and the number of borders that are crossed. So the longer the journey, the more that women and children in particular are, are at risk. So when you say that really the system exposes survivors to victimisation and harm, you're really talking about the inadequate systems that could protect them from exploitation on their long journeys. That's it, isn't it? There's more to it than that. But certainly from a humanitarian perspective, the lack of systems, the lack of safe spaces for women, children and LGBTQI within camps, unofficial settlements, no safe bathrooms, no safe spaces to be. So that's a key factor on the journey. What's really telling in our findings is just the ways in which the immigration and asylum systems can actually expose women and others to further SGBV. Firstly, by putting them in unsafe accommodation, shared gender, no locks on doors, that kind of thing. Uh, So sexual harassment is rife by other migrants, but also by those working in those kinds of places. But the way that immigration and asylum systems operate The idea that you've got to demonstrate, you've got to prove that you're a victim of SGBV, sexual and gender-based violence, very difficult to do. And very traumatic as well, presumably, having to repeat these stories to make sure that you're telling the truth, supposedly. Interviews can take hours. Often they're interviewed by a man or a male interpreter. Many people will not reveal what happened to them. It takes years to build their trust to disclose. They're certainly not going to find it easy to disclose in front of men 
and certainly someone from their own community. No counselling afterwards. So the the interviewing is can be cruel. People are laughed at. They're shouted at. We've got many examples of this. Why are they shouted at and laughed at? Because they want to make people feel like their stories are so ridiculous they may as well tell the truth. But then released into insecure accommodation, absolutely no counselling after raising all of these issues over and over again. And then refugees are in and out of asylum systems. When they're in, they've got a roof over their head, a small amount of money to live off. When they're out, they're evicted and then no recourse to public funds. They're on the streets and they're subject to further sexual and gender-based violence. They end up entering um, exploitative relationships or engaging in transactional sex just to survive. Can you outline some of the report's recommendations to medical professionals and also the authorities to help victims of mental trauma linked to sexual and gender-based violence get better? Well, the very first thing that needs to be considered is to support people to disclose what's happened to them, because that is the beginning of the journey to access services. And that means um, the development of a trusting relationship. So it takes time. Most interactions with a doctor take place in five to 10 minutes. It's impossible to build up that kind of relationship in that time. So we need specialist migrant and particularly women's organisations who've got the specialism around forced migration and gender and who work in a trauma and gender sensitive manner. And then there's a need for counselling services. We found that in some countries, group counselling, having a peer support group is particularly useful because often victims feel that they are the only one. It was their fault. Maybe their community makes them feel that it was their fault. So when they hear that many other people have had the same experience and they build the um, courage and confidence to share, that can be helpful. And at that point, it's a good opportunity to move into specialist counselling. There are specialist services, but they're really few and far between. So they're massively underfunded. Okay, final question to Professor Jenny Fillimore. What is this report going to do? How is it going to help us include more migrants in the discussion? How is it going to help improve the solidarity among nations? Well, we're using the evidence from the report um, to um, to have conversations with the international humanitarian organisations about increasing the level of services available for people on the move. Because when people are mobile, there's no fixed places that they can stop to access post-rate prophylaxis, for example. So that's part of it, looking at the journey. Um, so I mean, ideally, we would want to find a way to prevent sexual and gender-based violence. But I suppose at the moment, we're really focusing in on um, how we can support those who are on the journey. But essentially, we need safe routes. And as you say, when you've got these anti-refugee, anti-migrant rhetorics, it's quite difficult to campaign for those. The European response to Ukraine shows that it is possible for populations to be sympathetic towards migrants, although I have huge concerns that the way that that's being run is exposing women and girls, particularly to sexual and gender-based violence on a, on a large scale. When it comes to what happens in countries of refuge, what we're looking at is how can you make the asylum and immigration systems more gender and trauma sensitive? So making sure that caseworkers 
are trained, making sure that psychological support is built into these systems, looking at a reasonable burden of proof to demonstrate that you are a victim of sexual and gender-based violence. That takes a lot of reworking, but we are in conversations, certainly with the national government in the UK, and we're hopeful that our evidence will contribute to making a change. Thanks to Professor Jenny Fillimore from Birmingham University for taking us through the latest data from the Sereda project. A shout out too to Geneva's Red Cross Museum for giving us the heads up on the Sereda project report launch, an initiative taken in the context of its thematic year of gender and diversity. Now to wrap up the show, here's regular guest Solange Bejatega-Cortez to mull over what we've just heard about the dangers that migrants face. Hi Solange. Gracias Daniel. Alberto Moravia, the Italian novelist and journalist, wrote in 1957 The Women from Chocharia, whose title in English is Two Women. Moravia initially wanted to entitle it Lo Stupro, which means the rape. His novel tells the story of Cesira, a strong woman forced to flee Rome in 1943 with her 18-year-old daughter Rosetta. The two women suffer hunger, fear, betrayal, and the brutality of fellow peasants, and finally, rape at the hands of the liberators. Cesira and her daughter eventually emerge from the war to walk again along the path of their own life. But their story of escape and survival is not of one single incident but of dangers at every step, a continuum of abuse, just as we heard Professor Fillimore say. Cesira and Rosetta are two fictional women, but they represent millions in real life who are fighting to build resilience from Colombia, Guatemala, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Yemen, and Afghanistan. Despite the horrors that these women are trying to leave behind, they're fighting to change their circumstances from victim to survivor, with the capacity to denounce abuses and call for reform. It is horrifying how gender violence persists today. But if this Sereda project shows us anything, it's that there are clear problems and solutions. And it's everyone's duty to do what they can to stop this abuse. Perhaps what is changing now is that even if gender-based violence increases, there are efforts to make it visible and increasingly visible efforts to combat it, to help the millions of Chesiras and Rosetas to walk along the path of a new life. Thank you very much, Solange, for introducing me, certainly, to the Alberto Moravia novel. Thank you very much for joining us for the show here in UN Geneva. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us. Until then, bye-bye for now. (laughs) 